17 through 29. Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. And tonight, if you have got your Bibles open there, you can see that that's a rather extended section. And I know it's a bit ambitious to cover all that tonight, but I think we can do it. And I think it's good if we can do this all in one setting. I think it'll make more sense to you than if I have to break it up into two or three classes over two or three weeks. Remember that Paul speaks first about the condemnation of the immoralist in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. He then speaks of the condemnation of the moralist in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And tonight we begin a study of the condemnation of the Jew. And, and it will run from chapter 2, verse 17, all the way to chapter 3 and verse 8. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, he makes a blanket statement that the entire world... Are both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then, and then a little bit later, in the next section, he gives a summary statement, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, the condemnation of the Jew. Before we get into the passage itself, let me tell you that the tone, the tone of this portion of the argument of Paul is a bit on the aggressive side. Paul is a Christian who was racially a Jew. If the Jews think that Paul is going to cut them some slack because he's Jewish, they'll find out that they're wrong. The Jew, Paul says, is just as guilty before God as the Gentile, whether it be the immoral Gentile or the moral Gentile. In fact, of all three categories of persons, the Jew has the least excuse when it comes to understanding the need for salvation. Having traveled in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe and Central Asia and South America, I can say with confidence, at least with regard to the places that I've visited and that I've taught, that the United States has been greatly blessed and is greatly blessed with an abundance of availability of Bible teaching. At times, we may quibble about the quality of the Bible teaching, and on occasion that's legitimate, but what I'm referring to now is the availability, the vast availability of Bible teaching that is available in our culture. We have several translations of the Bible into English, several good translations. We have many local churches that teach the Word of God, especially in this part of the country. We have Christian bookstores that have scores of good reference tools and studying the Bible. We have Christian radio stations. We also have the Internet that, has, that can be used for evil in many cases, but it can also be used for good. And there are examples that we've talked about tonight, even where the Internet is being used for good, to have good Bible teaching go out over it. So if a person really wants to know what the Bible says about just about anything in our country, it's not that hard to find. I, I, I left television out on purpose because there are a few good television programs. There's a lot of a garbage on there, too. But I guess I should recant and, and throw television in there as well. But this abundant availability is not available in all parts of the world. Good translations are hard to come by in many languages, although Wycliffe Bible Translators is working on that. But Bible teaching is simply not available in a large part of this world. It would be fair to say that the vast majority of people who are born and raised in the United States are without excuse 
when it comes to knowing God's self-revelation to man. The opportunity is there. Having said that, it could be argued that we have done less with the abundance that we've been blessed with than others have done with the little that God has given them. I'm not at all sure that we've passed the prosperity test that God has given us. Now, this is not to imply that there is not great faithfulness in individual pockets in our country and in our culture. There certainly is incredible faithfulness. But whether or not we've been faithful as a nation, I'm talking about as a culture, as a people, that would be open for debate. If you understand what I've just said over the last two or three minutes, then you'll also understand what Paul is doing in this portion of the book of Romans. If you understand the fact that the United States has been greatly blessed with an abundance of availability, biblical teaching, but yet we haven't, as a culture, not individually, but as a culture, we haven't done what we should have done with that great blessing, now you'll understand what Paul is about to tell the Jew. The Jews had been tremendously blessed as a people. They were the custodians of God's self-revelation to mankind. They knew what the revealed will of God was. And they were in a position of being ambassadors to take Christ's message to a lost and dying world. And yet they did not take their privileges and the advantages that they had seriously. They failed because they did very little with the revelation that they were given. In fact, Paul says that the name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. And again, just like I said a minute ago, in the United States we do have pockets of faithfulness, incredible faithfulness in the United States. There were pockets of faithfulness in Israel as well. The Apostle Paul is an example of one. The disciples are examples. But again, what I'm talking about in the United States, I'm talking about it as a broad culture. And I, and I hope you would, you would, this would be fairly transparent and you could see it. If, if we as a culture are even having a debate about same-sex marriages, we're even having that discussion, I hope that, that makes the point without me having to say anything else, not to mention some of the other issues that have come up. So as a culture is what I'm saying. We have failed. As a, as a people, the Jews failed. That's what Paul will say. Not as individuals. There were individual exceptions. But now he's talking about as a people. Listen now as I read verses 17 through 20. Paul says, But if you bear the name Jew, and rely upon the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you, are, you yourself are able are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now there's a comma there. We'll have to continue. You're going to see this is a real long sentence. But Paul starts off by explaining that although the Jews were uniquely privileged, enjoying advantages above all others, they did not seem to realize that these blessings implied obligations. Many of these people, instead of using their superior endowments to help those in need, merely bragged about their prerogatives. 
This attitude of boastfulness found expression in various ways, as I'm going to indicate here in just a minute. First of all, they were very proud of the fact that they were Jews. Probably thinking, since we are Jews, we are a bit superior to everyone else. That's why Paul says, if you bear the name Jew, if you call yourself a Jew, and the way that this Greek verb uh, stands, it's in the middle voice, meaning they're calling themselves a Jew. This doesn't mean that someone else is calling them Jew. You're, you're proud of it. You, you call yourself a Jew. And you know what? That's not all that bad. We get the term Jew from the, the, the Hebrew Judah, and it, it means praise unto God. I mean, that's a good name, wouldn't you think? That's a good thing to be, is one of the custodians of God's Word. So it's, it's not all bad that they're proud, and there could be a non-sinful way to do it, but they're proud to be called a Jew. But Paul says, if you bear the name Jew, and by the way, the, the way that this Greek conditional is set up, it's very, very long, but these are statements that should be viewed in the affirmative. If you call yourself a Jew, and, and you do, and rely upon the law, the Mosaic law, and you do, here again, we must be reminded that, that there is a sense in which resting on God's law is, is the right thing to do. Now, Paul is going to, ultimately you're going to see these are all going to be viewed kind of negatively. But there's a positive side to these things as well. If there's a positive side to being called yourself a Jew. There's a, a positive side to relying upon the law. I hope you'd agree with that. There's a positive side of boasting in God. But the mere possession of the law gave them a strength of, a, an attitude of security, an attitude of superiority. But they, res, they believed that by means of a strenuous and continued effort to obey that law, they could earn salvation. So salvation by works. So they were relying upon the law, but relying upon it inappropriately. They bragged about their relationship to God as if this relationship, uh, in, if it existed at all, had been brought about by good deeds. So I want you to see the, the flavor, what Paul's starting to do. Um, if you bear the name Jew, and you do, you rely upon the law, and you, and you do, and you boast in God, and you do, and you know his will, you know his self-revelation, and you do, and you approve the things that are essential, or you've tested the things that are out there, and you, you know the things that are important, you can prioritize these things, and, in, and you've been instructed in the law, or you know his will, and you have. All these things are, are, are characteristic of the Jewish person. I want, you to, I want you to kind of picture this. Picture three people sitting in a, in a row on, on some sort of maybe game show. And it's, it's one of those things where they get to, to talk to the person on the right first, and then in the middle, and then on the left. Picture the immoralist getting all his first. You know, and everybody just kind of raking out against the immoralist, and, and the moralist is, is kind of quietly saying, boy, I'm glad I'm not an immoralist. I'm really glad I'm not then. And then when that gets finished, they move the spotlight to the middle position. And in the middle position, there's the moralist finds out, well, by golly, they have a, a problem as well. Can't you just picture the Jew sitting in the third chair, thinking the whole time, give it to him. You're right about that. Boy, I, I hope you pour it on him. Because I, I, they need it badly. And then all of a sudden, the spotlight shifts to the Jew. And the, the Jew may be thinking, well, yeah, I want the spotlight on me. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. I rely upon the law. I boast in God. I know his will. And I approve the things that are essential, being instructed in the law. Yeah! 
Paul is so brilliant. He knows his own countrymen. Remember, he's a Jew writing this. He knows exactly how to get them. All these are Greek conditionals that assume a, a positive response. And now he's got them. Because he's going to say, you're just as guilty. The Jews a little bit more, historically, the Jews in Paul's day, and I guess possibly even to our time, can be a little hard-headed about this, a little, a little proud, and so Paul knows that he's got to ring them in. So the Protestants of that, the Protestants is the if clause that runs all the way to verse 20. But as a result of being the possessor of the law, the Jew was supposed to be able and desirous to approve the things that really mattered. He regarded himself as a person who knew the difference between essentials and non-essentials, preferring the former instead of the essential things and doing the essential things. They preferred to know what the essential things were. And there's an incredible disconnect between what they knew and what they did with what they know. Now be careful. Uh, don't let your mind wander too much because while we are talking about Jewish unbelievers, this principle that Paul brings out is the same one James is going to bring out in his epistle when it comes to speaking about believers. God is interested, yes, in what you know. That's true. But he's also interested in there being a connection between what you know and what you do with it. And the Jew is going to be guilty of not making that connection when it came to salvation material. So what Paul is saying is this. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and you've been instructed out of the law and you know God's revealed will and you approve the things that really matter, and if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, look now at, in, uh, in verse 19, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish. You see those? There are four parallel items that Paul understands that the Jew considers themselves to be. First, a guide to the blind. As far as they were, this is not physical blindness. This is spiritual blindness. As far as the Jew was concerned, they had a responsibility to be a, a guide to those who were lost to bring them into salvation. That was their responsibility, and I believe they understood what that responsibility was. Whether they did it or not is another story, but they understood it. They were, also, they were supposed to be a, almost a parallel idea, a light for those who were in darkness, an instructor of those who were foolish, and a teacher of the immature. That was the responsibility of the Jew, being the custodian of God's word in the age of the Jew, in the Mosaic age. It's a great privilege to be God's representative in these areas, but it's also a great responsibility. What Paul is asking the Jew is, what have you done with it? Okay, I understand that you're a Jew. I understand you boast in God. I know you, you know the law. Now, what have you done with it? You have this responsibility. What have you done with it? Or have you become so absorbed in your own self that you've forgotten that there's a lost world out there that needs Christ desperately, that needs the Messiah desperately? Billy, I like what Billy Graham said about this kind of responsibility. He said, the evangelistic harvest is always urgent. 
The destiny of men and nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear the full responsibility for the next one, but we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. Billy Graham could have been talking to us as an American culture, or he could have been talking to the Jewish culture. The message would have been the same. We have a responsibility, just like the Jews did. Now we can summarize what Paul's saying. If you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of immature people, or infants, because in the law you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, if, if this is what you really think is true, we can, can, can you start to feel the tone, the aggressive tone that, that Paul's building up? Can you, can you almost start to feel a little frustration on his part? He loves his people. You're going to see that when we get to, to chapters 9 through 11. He, he weeps for the Jewish people that are not fulfilling their obligations. But Paul, being a Jew, is actually, I think you'll find as we get through this, he's actually cutting this category of persons, the one in chair number three. He really cuts them less slack than he does anybody else because they had the information. The Gentiles, although they didn't have the law, had a law written on their heart. Natural law. The Jews had the law written on their heart, but they also had the written law right in front of them. They had had great privilege, and yet they still, as a people, with individual exceptions, rejected Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, if you think you are really so learned, wise, and capable... Is it not high time that you began to examine yourself? The Jew sat in chair number three and was all for condemning the immoralist. All for condemning the moralist. Turn the light on yourself. You have the revelation of God. Do you stack up? Is what Paul is doing. Now verse 21 through 23. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? What Paul is saying amounts to this. If you present yourself as a person who relies on God and His law and even teach others the meaning of this law and impress upon them that they should live in harmony with it, how is it that you yourself... Do not practice what you preach. That the life of many a scribe or Pharisee was not in keeping with their teaching and certainly not in harmony with God's holy law is brought out clearly by our Lord in the New Testament. But let's not be so quick to understand this as a condemnation of Jews who understood the word but didn't practice what they preached. Pharisees and scribes. The same principle holds true in the New Testament. There, are, there's, there is a certain standard that God holds those who proclaim his message on his behalf. There's a certain standard God holds those people to. 
And it's not up to any individual to lower that standard and say, well, listen, I, I understand that, that there's, uh, there's this moral issue and this part of not being above reproach and there's this addicted to wine issue and there's all these other things. But that person's a great Bible teacher, so I'm ignore that. You don't have that option. God holds his representatives to certain standards. Now, I happen to be the most public representative in, in this ministry, but guess what? You're held to standards as well. God is not the least bit interested in someone standing before his people and saying, do as I say, not as I do. He's not the least bit interested in that. In, in fact, he condemns it. And that's exactly what he's doing with the Jew as well. The Jew was saying, do as I say, but not as I do. And that's why Paul says, you say that, that you should not steal, but do you steal? And the way that these questions are worded in the original language, they demand a yes answer. You say you don't steal, but you steal, don't you? Yeah, you do. You say that you should not commit adultery, but you commit adultery. Now, this, it's interesting. We could understand this in the same way that he was going after the moralist, with the outward and the inward form of the sin. Interesting, in the Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament and was written... Uh, well, actually, we went over quite a bit of time. There was a problem with the Jewish rabbis, scribes, and Pharisees committing adultery at that time. I'm talking about physical adultery. These were the people who were supposed to be held to a very high moral standard, yet they would preach one thing to their people in the synagogues, but in the, in the back room, they were doing something else. Under the cover of darkness, they were doing something else. Not a malady that's confined to that day either. You know, there's also information in the Talmud that, that Jews were actually robbing temples, even though they abhorred idols. That's one thing that a Jew just can't stand is, is idolatry. But there's information that they actually were doing these very things. So we could understand it the same way that we understood the moralist condemnation, that there was an external form and an internal form. But there's also some historical evidence that Paul is talking about actual historical events here. But the bottom line is, they preach one thing and they act in another way. They're condemning themselves, just like the moralist was condemned. You brag about the law. You dishonor God by your transgression of the law. Paul says that ought not to be. And in fact, it got so bad that in verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a quotation from Isaiah 52, 5. The Old Testament passage takes into consideration the assumption on the part of the Gentiles that when a nation is conquered and deported, its God had been conquered. So since Israel was being judged by Yahweh, the Gentile nations assumed that Yahweh wasn't very strong. That's part of the context of Isaiah 52. So the conquered nation blasphemed Israel along with its God. Here in Romans 2.24, the Gentiles are represented as reasoning, the people Israel behaved wickedly, therefore their God must be wicked also, for the people resemble their God, right? We go around bragging in Christianity, we represent God, right? You know, We want you to come to Christ, right? And then we don't want them to look at our behavior. 
do as I say, not as I do. But that's not God's prescription. Happens a lot. I tell you what, I don't know if you realize the amount of damage, in one sense, that was done, I think it was in the 80s, with some of the very public disgraces that, that Christian ministers went through did a great deal of damage in one sense. In another sense, the plan of God is not ultimately going to be damaged. God's, God's plan is going to continue to go on regardless of whose faithfulness is involved. But when these things become public, and you say you represent God, and then you represent him that way, and God's name is blasphemed on account of it, he doesn't appreciate that very much. So that's why Paul brings this up. In both cases, Israel had failed to be what, according to Romans 2.19, it pretended to be, namely a light for those who were in darkness. Instead of being a light for those who were in darkness, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, were going around and putting out the light. Instead of bringing people to Christ, they were running people off. And Paul condemns them for that. In verse 25, Paul says, 25, 26, and 27, Paul says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? And I know this, it gets a little wordy, and the way Paul writes here is a little bit difficult to follow, but, but Paul has, has already shown that the Jews cannot build their confidence on the, the fact that they and not the Gentiles were, in possess, were possessors of the law. He's made that clear, right? Paul's already shown that the Jews can't build their confidence on the fact that they and not the Gentiles were in possession of the law. He now moves to prove the point that neither can they base their sense of security on the fact that they and not the Gentiles have been circumcised. Paul argues that circumcision, unaccompanied by obedience to God's holy law, is of no value. Now, if he was writing this to our culture, he could say something like a, a baptism or church membership. You know, it, you, can be, you can be baptized, you can have joined a church, but you realize that doesn't mean that you're saved. I have a, I have a friend that wrote a, a contemporary Christian song said, and the title was, You Can Sit in the Driveway All Day Long and Not Turn Into a Car. You can go to church all your life. You can be a member of the local church and not a member of the universal church. You can be a circumcised person in Israel and not be a saved person in Israel. If one was circumcised and also was a saved person, then there was some benefit in their circumcision because they were following the ritual that God set out. But if a person was circumcised and then never trusted, trusted Yahweh, in the Old Testament sense, for eternal life, that circumcision was totally meaningless. It was a ritual without any reality behind it at all. And God is not interested in ritual without uh, reality. With, uh, without obedience, ritual is meaningless. People love ritual. One thing that I saw when I was with, with Jim and a few months back in, in the Ukraine is how people in the Orthodox tradition love ritual. I went and visited the Lavra. Yeah, the Lavra. It was a big um, 
I guess hundreds of years old monastery on top of the hill, incredibly ornate. And the, the priest reminded me so much of the Pharisees with their long beards and their robes, and they would walk around and they would be spraying this stuff, and they'd you know, walk into the room, they'd be chanting ritual, it's, it's ritual out the kazoo. And they would go up and they would kiss pictures, you know, of the saints, and they would wipe it off, and the next person would come in. And it was as dead as it could possibly be. I, I would, if I had to bet on it, I'd bet there wasn't a saved person in the building. Could have been. I mean, but if they were saved, they were saved by accident, not by intent. And that's not, the, that's not the point. You know, ritual without reality is dead. It's meaningless. It doesn't impress God. It's working your way to heaven. And that's not the way it ought to be. So God is not so impressed with one who is circumcised. And how dare you think that he is? One's not impressed with your baptism or your church membership if it's done apart from faith in Christ. And how dare we think that he would be? That, that's the pittance that we're going to bring to him? I'll, I'll be baptized. You've got to save me. No. It's insane. What kind, of, what kind of being do you think God is that you're going to be able to bring him that pittance and say, I'm going to give you this and you give me eternal life? fact is you can't bring him anything. You've got to come with the empty hands of faith, which is uh, the point of this epistle. So Paul's saying that a circumcision that is merely outward is not better than the observation of the mere letter of the law. So what he's doing is, is two parts here. First, he has this series of, of Greek conditional clauses that all demand a yes answer. Do you consider yourself a Jew? Yes. Do you rely upon the law? Do you boast in God, etc. Then you get down to it. Paul says, but you're not practicing what you preach. You're, doing, you're, you're hypocrites. You're saying that the people need to do this, but you're not doing it. You haven't fulfilled the law. You haven't come to faith in Christ. In fact, you count on outward circumcision to get you to heaven, and you're no better than the people who aren't circumcised. Both of you are lost. He's a little hard on the Jew in this passage. But he, he's hard because he loves them. That's why he's hard on them. In verses 28 and 29, as we close this, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not of the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In Romans 9-11, through 11, Paul's going to pick this theme up, and he'll expand it over three chapters. But he introduces it here. He's going to come back to it later. But he introduces it here. When, he, when Paul speaks of the true Jew, he's not speaking of one that was born racially from the seed of Abraham. A true Jew, to the Apostle Paul, was one that had followed the pattern of father Abraham. Abraham trusted Yahweh, he trusted Elohim, and it was credited to him for righteousness. That's what made a person the spiritual seed of Abraham. The racial seed of Abraham is not necessarily going to heaven. Paul was the racial seed of Abraham. He was a Jew by birth. But the reason Paul was going to heaven is he was a spiritual son of Abraham. He had followed the pattern of Father Abraham. Now, one, one I hate to call it a technique, but techniques are not necessarily bad. But one issue that I would raise in witnessing to a Jewish person is what are they counting on for themselves to be rightly related to God? Or, if they don't understand that, what are you counting on to spend eternity in heaven with your Lord? I wouldn't use, and you don't have to, a New Testament passage to tell them that salvation is by grace through faith. I would point them back 
to the person that they admire most in the Old Testament, and that's Father Abraham. How was Father Abraham rightly related? And the answer is, by faith. Now, many Jews have blocked that out, just like many Gentiles have, and they think that it was by works. Abraham was not a perfect person, though, and the scriptures make a point of pointing that out, that he failed, and he failed miserably on several different occasions. But Abraham was a faithful person, and he exercised faith in Yahweh, and that was what was credited to him for righteousness. And by the way, that phrase, credited to him for righteousness, is where we come up with the idea of justification. Same concept that Paul is talking about here. So finally, in the, in the last two sentences, or two uh, verses, Paul draws a sharp distinction between Jew and Jew. First, the person who is a Jew outwardly only, that is a Jew by virtue of physical or biological descent and nothing more. That's one type of person that could be called Jew. But according to Paul, that's not a true Jew. A true Jew is an individual who is a Jew not only outwardly but also inwardly. That is a Jew who has, in obedience to the law, trusted Yahweh for salvation. And again, Paul will expand upon this greatly at a different part of this epistle. It would be months before we get to it. But he does come back to this concept. But for now, he wants the Jew to understand that you're just as, you're, you are just as in need of a Savior as the immoralist or the moralist, as the, as the Gentile, whether they are moral or immoral. You have every bit of a need. Why? Because not only did you have the law written on your hearts, but you had the law in writing. You were supposed to be the teachers of the law. You were supposed to lead people to Christ. Not only did you not do that, you never accepted that truth yourself. You realize that there are people teaching in seminaries today that perhaps, for example, know their Old Testament, some of them their New Testament, in terms of the data better than you and I do, but they don't believe a word of what they teach. To me, that's an incredible tragedy. So if we wanted to understand it in, in modern terms, we could say the immoralist needs a Savior, yes. The moralist needs a Savior, yes. Seminary professor, yeah, you need a Savior too. Just because you know it doesn't mean that you've accepted it. There are people that know that salvation is by grace through faith apart from works, but they refuse the offer. What a tragedy that is. Now, in the next section, Paul is going to answer a rhetorical question because now the Jew is reeling. Now the Jew is, is beat up. And the Jew is kind of throwing his hands up and saying, well, wait a minute. I thought there was supposed to be some advantage to being a Jew. And Paul is going to say, oh, there is. Much in every way. But we'll have to wait till next week to see that. In conclusion, the Jew, Paul says, is just as guilty as the immoralist and the moralist because tragically, even though they had the law, they did not follow the law and they did the very things that they taught against. Heavenly Father, what a great privilege we count it to be here tonight. Thank you for this revelation. I, I appreciate your wonderful grace and your mercy. I thank, you that, I thank you that we can't work our way to heaven, but that you have so graciously provided salvation for us. And now, Father, I do pray that we wouldn't make the same mistake as those Jews of the Old Testament as a culture, individually and as a culture. I pray that we would be a light 
to a lost and dying uh, to a lost and a dying world that we would be bold in our presentation of the gospel both here and abroad and that we would be enthusiastic in our support of missions as the gospel is taken to lands that we might not be able to visit ourselves personally. Uh, Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would give us the aggressiveness that is needed in our time to spread the word about Jesus Christ for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.